The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not represent that of the WPFS Tallahassee. Not on the highest point in Florida State's campus, but a virtual room with the Tomahawk Talk crew. It is a good evening to you and how you be. William Haynes here, you there at 7 o'clock on this Monday night. Jackson Bakich, our co-host, and Jack Oliaro, our producer, rounding the panel out for this one. Special thanks to some V89 legends, Brett Rutherford and Ryan Kelly, for holding it down in the studio last week as we got our setup straightened out down here. Jackson, we'll start with you. Uh, as, as we're now in the, the summer period, well, we're all spread out uh, across the state, across the country. I think we all have a pretty good guess of where you're hanging out for the next couple months. Yeah, well, that guess is correct. I am in Lake County, the, uh, the greatest uh, collection of municipalities in all of Florida. And you know, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And usually, you know, I, I, I introduce myself and I say, you know, if I was any better, I'd be dead. But, you know, if I was any better, I would be well. The last few weeks, in the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of sick. Uh, you know, just bad headaches, bad fevers. But um, I'm slowly getting around the corner here, slowly turning the corner, making the, making the bend. So uh, really excited to be on here to kind of get back to normal. But um, how are y'all doing? Y'all doing good? Doing great. I'm hanging out down here in Clearwater, about uh, 20 minutes or so north of Tropicana Field. Already hit a couple of Rays games. Uh, I think we can all attest it's a little bit different not being in Tallahassee like we're used to. Uh, and certainly these shows this summer are going to be a little bit different uh, doing them over Zoom. But uh, we'll move to you next, Jack. Uh, it's great to finally have you on the show where we can actually talk to you because, of course, uh, the last time we attempted to do it, uh, it was a horrible slew of, of technical difficulties and such. So uh, for the first time, we can have a back and forth, Jack. So great to be talking with you today. It is nice to be talking with you. Um, while I could normally talk with you through the tank or the other tank in the prod booth, um, instead, we're, uh, I'm forward to talk to you over computer and uh, it's the best we can do. But I'm, very lo I'm uh, looking forward to being back on here. Uh, excited to uh, talk to you guys about what's been happening. So yeah. Where are you uh, hanging out this summer? I saw, I think, online you were at the, uh, what, the F1 in Miami yesterday. Is that right? I was in Miami for the uh, first uh, practice sessions for the Miami, uh, inaugural Miami Grand Prix. Uh, they basically took the Miami parking lot and put a Formula One track in there. Um, it's pretty incredible that that's even happened. Uh, a lot of lot of work has had to like, go down for this to you know, even happen, fighting. Um, local backlash, but uh, they put on quite a spectacle for at least that first day. And uh, later today will be the third and final qualifying session or uh, practice session followed by the qualifying session. So I will be, have that right on my TV right there. But yeah, it was quite, um, it was incredible to be a part of, yeah. Jack, and you're, uh, sessions, are they, uh, are they open to the public or did it, did it you know, did you have to throw out some money bags for it or? There are quite a few money bags thrown out for it. Um, really? At one point when the tickets were first dropped to go to all three days and sit in a grandstand, uh, it was about in the thousands. Wow. Yeah. Uh, these are, uh, these races are kind of for uh, the people with um, bags of cash who can sort of uh, afford it. Uh, we were only able to get one day practice session. So that's why I am here and not in uh, Miami, Florida. Well, and you're hanging out right in Orlando, is it, next few months? I am. Uh, I'm, I'm about, I can almost count the amount of feet I am towards uh, Lake County overlooking in Jackson, right about there. So Hi, hi Jack. Hi, hi Jackson. 
All right, with uh, all the introductions out of the way, we're, uh, three of us will be doing the first half. We have a conversation with uh, me and Max Rundy about some Major League Baseball later on, so make sure to stay tuned over the course of the full hour for that. Um, and then a little peek behind the curtain for, for some of these summer shows is a little bit different. We're, we're pre-recording this a couple of days in advance. We'll try and keep everything as pertinent as possible. Most of the stuff, I think, uh, we can talk about certainly is relevant, but just keep in mind, you know, if we bring up a series, we may not have the latest game, but uh, we, we'll have most, uh, as I said, of the relevant information. We'll start with FSU baseball and what has been uh, a disappointing week for them to this point. They had a midweek loss against Stetson and they lost on Friday night in walk-off fashion in Boston College uh, to the Eagles. Guys, we'll start with the Stetson game, a midweek game, and, and midweek games particularly on the road has been a bugaboo for them. They're, as of right now, 4-9 on the road overall. That 6 nothing loss at Stetson this week. Uh, we'll start in the bottom of the second inning. A hit by pitch, an error, and a home run, all with two outs uh, for Ross Dunn, leading to three unearned runs. We talked a couple weeks ago when we were last on the show how big of a deal the errors were for this team and, and you know, the hit-by-pitches as well, all the things that you talk about uh, that a crisp team wouldn't do. Florida State is, is doing all those things. Uh, so they take an early 3 nothing lead, do the Hatters with that one. Bottom fourth, Connor Whitaker comes on. Uh, with the bases loaded and walks in a run. And that's another thing they've had issues with uh, control, not throwing a ton of strikes. Bottom of the fifth, a two-out triple uh, to make it 5 to nothing, And then the sixth run coming on another error. So of the six runs that Stetson scored against Florida State, four of them were unearned. Uh, so the defense having a rough go in that one. Uh, FSU only had six base runners over the course of that game as they get shut out on the road. And only two of those six base runners were hit. So, um, guys, we'll talk about this one first. Really inept on all sides of the game in that that loss to Stetson. Well, I'll tell you what that Jordan Carrion error was absolutely critical because there was one out, man on first base. Uh, he gets a tailor made ground ball right to him, and you know at the Division One Power Five level, that needs to end the inning. You know, Ross Dunn, Ross Dunn should have been out of the inning at that point. But uh, like you said in your little monologue right there, it's, it's, it's absolutely vital to keep the errors down. And against a scrappy team like Stetson, um, they don't necessarily have the best record right now, but you know, they're, they're a respectable ball club. They've produced some, some great talent throughout the years and they've hosted regionals and super regionals. And, you know, you just cannot allow yourself to have errors of that magnitude. Um, and then you see later on in the game, Stetson was able to hit the ball with two outs. That, that's really what the game came down to. Uh, Florida State obviously could not because uh, they put an old goose egg up on the board. But you got to be able to hit with two outs and you can't commit errors. And that's really – if I had to pick two things um, as a manager that I could guarantee, it would probably be to be able to hit with two outs and to not make errors. Yeah, that was – I was trying to hint at that in, in Jackson, and kind of something I want to ask you. You've played baseball at, at the high school level, and um, as we as we get towards the end of the season, this is the last month. Uh, at the end of the month, in a couple of weeks, we'll have the ACC tournament, and depending on how things go there, we'll have uh, the, the regional uh, level of the national tournament. You know, baseball more than maybe any other sport um, – 
you're either if you're hot, you're hot. If you're not, you're not. And some of these things that you know maybe the errors and the, the two out the two out hits and the, and the walks with the bases loaded maybe that's stuff that you see early on in the season when a team is sloppy and inexperienced. But when you get to the, towards the most important part of the season and they're committing these kind of things the most, I mean it's not like they've got much more time to clean this up. Is this is this just the team that we're going to get moving forward? Well, the thing about baseball that's always intrigued me and softball is like this a little bit, but definitely not as much because in softball you have, usually you only have two pitchers that you throw throughout the season, maybe three. Um, and obviously you have people that come in and close, but, you know, in softball you have pitchers that are, that are going five, six innings almost every, every, every game they pitch. Uh, but in baseball, if you're playing in a three-game series, you are facing a different ball club every single game. And, and maybe, you know, maybe you keep the batting line at the same, but the entire game is dependent on who's on that island, who's on that rubber, who's on that mound. And, uh, you know, if you're throwing your ace or you're throwing your, your, your third or your fourth guy, you're not facing the same team every day. You're not playing as the same team every day. So um, that's where Florida State, I think, will do well in a regional format. Um, you know, if they, if they need to win two out of three uh, and they, they can throw the likes of Parker Messick and, and Bryce Hubbard, then they can do that. Maybe Carson Montgomery, who's, who's come on uh, last few parts of the, of the season. But over the longevity of the season, we've seen, you know, just the entire uh, team not be able to be consistent because of that. Yeah, and and you've seen uh, Coach Mike Martin Jr. do some things to shake things up. When Jordan Carrion uh, was red hot right around the time of his birthday, he moved all the way to the top of the order, and he was a guy that was hitting sixth or seventh uh, for most of the year. So he's trying to do things. Uh, you know, a midweek shutout loss is is not what you want to see. And um, early on in the season, I think we kind of passed it off like, oh, you know, win your ACC games, beat your ranked teams. And, I mean, FSU has done well in, in their 8-3 and three to this point weekend series. We'll see how things go in Boston uh, against Boston College. And they're, I think they've won, as of now, seven straight against ranked teams. So maybe, as you say, um, in that, that, that regional format, they could do better depending on the competition. But um, what's important with the loss against Stetson is – as, as far as hosting a regional, I, I think hosting a super regional is, is out of out of reach at this point. But those still count. Those games count for your win-loss record. And, yes, you'll get maybe two or three games in the ACC tournament to stack up a couple more wins. But um, this is a team, as of right now, I think 27 wins. They won 30 games a season ago, and that, that was only good enough for a three-seed in that Oxford regional they were not able to come out of. Uh, I looked at last year's format. You're going to need to win probably 40 games, maybe 35 if you have some really good wins to host a regional. And the team that we're seeing right now, two losses already this week. I just I, I question if they're going to be able to to get to that point. They've got some games against Miami, who's a top 10 team. They're, they'll play Florida again. So if this is the team that they're fielding, uh, not only do you not want to see the losses, but this is going to hurt their their ability to host a regional. And I think we can all agree that having that regional in Tallahassee is important to get out of that first level. Yeah, I would agree. Their, their road record is absolutely yeah. atrocious. And, uh, but their home record's really solid. They're winning three-fourths of their games at home. Um, so when we look at 
especially when we look at when Parker Messick is throwing. This is what two out of his last three starts that he's thrown absolute gems, and they and the offense could not support him because remember he threw nine innings in that uh, extra inning game. Forgive me, I forget who was, who was against. It was Notre Dame. Yeah, Notre Dame. That's right. And then he throws he throws nine innings again against Boston College, and of course they they walk a guy to lose a game, and it just it just doesn't look good on the road. Um, I mean, obviously the Notre Dame game was at home, but it just doesn't look good right now. And I don't know how else to put it, but uh, who knows? Maybe maybe they win the ACC tournament. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But, um, you know, maybe they get hot here and they, they go on a stretch, maybe eight and two, nine and one next few games. And uh, who knows? Maybe maybe they uh, they snatch a, a, a regional hosting out of the uh, jaws of defeat. Yeah, I was reading an article in the Tallahassee Democrat going into this weekend that was saying that they, they had felt that FSU's chance at hosting a regional was not far-fetched. Um, a reminder for anyone that there's 16 teams that host regionals. It's not exactly the top 16 in the national poll. Like, for instance, um, the recent Bracketology had Wake Forest hosting a regional, um, and they're not even in the top 25. So it can depend, but they, they've got – uh, I think like the second or third most wins in the ACC. So total record does count. I mean, FSU has not been great in ACC play, but you drop midweek games to Stetson. That's kind of why we're we're harping on it. Um, but they were saying, you know, you got to sweep BC to kind of stay on the running, and here they are. They they've lost on Friday, and uh, we've alluded to it a little bit. So we'll we'll talk about it. Three to two in walk off fashion. Um, up in Boston College, it was the reigning pitcher of the month again, Parker Messick. Um, Hard to hard to overstate kind of what he's done. 128 strikeouts compared to only 12 walks. He came into the season saying he wanted more starts than walks this season, and he might very well actually accomplish that. I think it's been um, like a month, six weeks since the last time he walked a batter, which is unfathomable, especially for a pitching staff that seems like lately all they're doing is walking guys. So at least you get some uh, stability with your Friday starter there. He's pitching now. After his start against BC to a 2.56 earned run average, uh, his total line in that game, he went eight innings, 12 strikeouts, gave up two runs on five hits, of course, no walks. He had 109 pitches to that point, so they don't let him go the ninth inning. Uh, he's, he's gone, I think, like almost 130 pitches a couple times this year, so you, you don't want to make that necessarily a habit. Um, but they were tied 2-2 two to two after um, eight innings of play. Uh, to start the game in the top of the first, the Noles scored a couple of runs off of four hits, but then uh, the BC starter Mancini retired the next 23 batters in a row. So all of a sudden, you know, four hits right off the bat, and they can't get anything until I think a Trayton uh, rank or maybe a Brett Roberts single uh, in the ninth inning to get back on the board. Uh, it was the first complete game a pitcher had thrown against FSU since 2019 as Mancini was able to go the distance. So the first time in about two or three years, um, but they, they took the, the two nothing lead early bottom of the second, a leadoff hit by pitch comes around to score. And that's been a theme th this week, not only with the walks, but the hit batters as well. Bottom of the fifth, again, two outs infield hit as well. That tied the game at two. And then you head all the way to the bottom of the ninth and another leadoff uh, hit by pitch comes around to score. That one issued by Connor Whitaker. Um, that's the only batter he faces to start the inning. Um, then they bring in Scalero. He gives up a walk 
uh, in a single to load the bases with nobody out. Davis Hare comes in uh, and he walks in uh, the walk-off run. So a couple of things to, to kind of unpack here. The first thing that, that stood out to me, if you look to the back end of this game, <clears throat> Connor Whitaker, he hit, he hit the first batter in the ninth. And Mike Martin Jr. gave him the hook. He only faced one batter. Then they bring in Scalero, and he only faces two. So the first two ba- the first two pitchers that appear in the ninth inning, neither of them get any outs. So uh, before it was, you know, Jr. would stick with Scalero until the bitter end. And now you're kind of having a situation where, um, you know, Whitaker is getting the hook after one batter. So um, no one in this bullpen is necessarily reliable, but that's crazy that you have three pitchers in the ninth and uh, only one of them getting out. And, yeah, uh, the bullpen has just been, for lack of better words, mediocre at best uh, this entire season. Um, you know, dudes like Scalero, they've gone to him a few times. He's blown a few saves. It, you know, it happens. But they haven't had, you know, a few guys that they can point to. And be, well, Connor Whitaker, he's been pretty solid ERA-wise. But um, they haven't had – their guy. They haven't had their – I know this is kind of a high bar to set, but they don't have their Rivera. They don't have their guy that is, you know, I need you to go get two outs. They, they don't have that guy this year. And, um, you know, some teams have them, some teams don't, but um, they're going to need one. One thing I'll ask you, Jackson, I think when people think about slumps in baseball, it's about the hitters and, and the, the, the numbers that they have. But with pitchers, is there, is there such a thing where you have kind of a funk where they're having a lot of trouble with walks, hit by pitches even? I mean, is this just maybe a two- or three-week stretch where they're just having trouble throwing strikes that can be corrected? You know, in my years of slinging the rock, um, it's it's never a uh, pitching is not a um a, a continual slump it's a case by case basis uh in my opinion if if you have a lot of bad starts in a row cuz you know you're not throwing every day you're not pitching every day uh you're just not good <laughs> so uh but you know every once in a while you just you just don't have a few of your pitches that day. And every once in a while, you just don't have command. And every once in a while, you just don't have control. And every once in a while, you know, you just don't have your stuff. And that's generally accepted within base. It's just like a shooter, you know, in basketball. Um, If you don't shoot well over a, you know, three out of four games, you're just not that great of a shooter. But if you shoot well three out of four games and you have a terrible fourth game or that one bad game is terrible – uh, and people base you off that one bad game, that's not a good way to, to look at talent. But, um, you know, if you are more likely not doing well, it's not a slump. It's just you're not that good. So, uh, yeah, and, I'll, and I'll, give, I'll give Mike Martin Jr. a lot of credit for shaking things up. I mean, obviously you want to – you got to, like I said, get to 35, 40 wins to host a regional. But the, at the end of the day – you just got to figure it out, period. Uh, Ross Dunn made his first start, I think, as a weekday starter, went a couple innings against Stetson. I think they moved – they even moved the weekend rotation around a little bit. Um, so he he's trying things, as we talked about today, the, the bullpen has been mixed around as well. And I think, as we've touched on as well, there may not be a correct answer with the bullpen, but he's trying to find one. Uh, so we'll see as, as the BC series goes on and uh, into I thought, next. I thought Russ Dunn threw well. Uh, you, I don't think you can tag that home run on him. 
uh, especially with that error that carry on committed. And, uh, you know, obviously there, if there's no error and there's the hit by pitch and, and then it leaves a home run, obviously that's on him, but just from a pitcher's perspective growing up, if, if any run was scored after an error that should have ended in an inning, I, I don't, I don't even think of it as my fault. And uh, I know it might be a selfish way to think about it, but, you know, after the game, during the game, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get out and I'm trying to get out of there as much as possible for my team. But after the game, I'm looking back and I'm like, you know, damn, like I, you know, that, that play's made, I'm out. I'm out, I'm out of there. So uh, there's an old saying, you know, you know, forgive and forget. Pitchers have to forget and then forgive. Um, so, you know, I thought Russ done threw the ball well. And it just, things just didn't go his way yesterday, or excuse me, Tuesday. Yeah, and, and I, I think you're right with with the two-hour error. Yeah, I don't think it's reasonable to blame him. Uh, the runs go down as unearned. And I think even with him, the fact that he went a couple innings, that's what his role is going to be towards the end of the month as you get into these these weekend kind of regional. He's just going to be a maybe a, a long reliever. So I just try and get him right as much as he can and maybe – uh, I think they're playing Jacksonville during the, the week, uh, a couple weeks from now, so he'll get a chance to to start again. So that'll wrap up uh, our baseball talk. Some other FSU kind of quick hit stuff. Um, quick, William, what if what if Mike what if uh, Junior went to the went to the opener? What if he really wanted? To oh man, <sighs> I don't I don't know because obviously Messick, you don't want to bother for with for a weekday starter. Yeah, for exactly. weekday starts. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the team that invented the opener and the race, they did it because they had a good bullpen. I would say that with the bullpen that FSU has, like, I don't really want Scalero throwing an inning or two to start the game. I don't, I don't really trust him at inning one through nine regardless. So I'd rather just have, you know, Dunn come out to start. Yeah, no, I got that. I got that. But, hey, anything's on the table because I think, you know, it's not desperation mode, but I think they're open to, to just about anything at this point. Um, but there are some uh, some FSU sports in the postseason this weekend. Uh, tennis, women's golf, beach volleyball. Um, so as their their playoffs kind of continue, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that. Uh, Jack, I know this is, is kind of some of your stuff that you like. Uh, the, the softball team, FSU, sweeps – the season series with the Florida Gators for the first time since 2006. They walked off the then number 10 Gators two to one this week. Johnny Kerr with a, with a solo shot in the seventh uh, FSU softball. They're now 30 and zero in non-conference play. They're 14 and two against ranked teams and uh, a couple wins against the Gators they had a thrilling one in Gainesville earlier this year. Uh, this is probably the best sport that FSU has going right now. Yes. Um, especially uh, when you look at, I mean, this is kind of a weird stat, but um, how FSU has no non-conference road wins while the FSU softball team, like you said, has not lost a non-conference game. Uh, Obviously different sports and different circumstances. However, um, it really speaks volumes because softball is on such a trek where you can just about guarantee guarantee that they'll almost get out of any situation. Whether when you're in a one-one situation and you need a run, you can almost you can almost bang on the fact that in the bottom of seventh, maybe you don't bet on a home run, but you can say, hey, they're probably going to escape this somehow. And they do. They pull the rabbit out of the hat damn near every time in many different ways. If it's a sixth inning, uh, big, if it's a big sixth inning run, or if it's a walk off to 
put it over your biggest rivals in uh, Gainesville. Um, they get it done in so many different ways. Um, that is what a championship caliber team looks like. It's a team that could win in many different ways. FSU baseball can win on Fridays and Saturdays all they want at home. Uh, they, they're not getting done Sundays and midweeks they're atrocious. So um, it's just two different two different sides of the coin going on here. And especially with the, well, FSU has two amazing pitchers and Catherine Sandercock for softball and then Parker Messick for baseball. Um, softball bullpen has been relatively clean while um, the baseball one has is maybe its biggest issue right now, if not the uh, very hot and cold hitting that uh, the team uh, faces. So yeah, very good win. Um, that doesn't, they have a big series uh, coming up. Uh, they had they have the NC State series for Raleigh. That's going to be their final series. And then it's going to start ACC tournament time. And you should, it not, not to be guaranteed, but like you would probably put, I would probably put as much money as I can on FSU or maybe Virginia Tech because those two teams when they played was the, probably one of the best softball like weekends or series as a whole that I've ever seen. A very competitive, um, really showcasing the game uh, at its finest. You know, yeah. This, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Wayne. Go ahead. They'll have Oklahoma probably at some point uh, in the postseason. They played in the in the World Series final last year, and I just wanted to touch to your point, Jack, about the contrast between baseball and softball. Baseball's on the outside looking in of a regional, but I think FSU softball they they beat uh, number seven, I think Oklahoma State a couple times. They beat UF again. They're a lock, I think, to host a super regional at this point. Mm-hmm. They they should be guaranteed. Uh, probably all of that. I believe they're sitting at a three seat just in the top 25 as a whole. The only ones above them are Oklahoma and maybe UCLA uh, at the moment The two and three are a bit of a toss and turn, but it's for, it seems to be pretty set that Oklahoma is the number one team. And hopefully um, down the stretch, uh, you can maybe see that uh, rematch of that um, uh, championship again between Oklahoma and FSU. And uh, maybe they can get the better of them because I didn't cover as much softball last year and I don't, I can't speak on behalf, but FSU is finding many different ways to win. And uh, it's something I've never really seen before. And it's something that I think that could put them over the edge, potentially over Oklahoma or whoever is in that final to finally get that chip they have missed out on since maybe 18. You know, when I, uh, when I watch this Florida State softball team, I just see a team, like you said, Jack, that just knows how to win. And, um, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go to the Florida State Clemson game, football game, uh, this past season. And, you know, Clemson didn't, they were four and three at the time. Uh, they ended up having a 10 win season, ended up going 10 and three, uh, even missed out on the ACC uh, title game. But when I look at that team, Florida State has the lead uh, with about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter. And, um, it's looking like they're, they're, they have a chance to pull it out. But, of course, Clemson, uh, now they get that last touchdown by Will Shipley. But I look at that team and I, I look at that, that coaching staff who had Brett Venables at the time, and I see a team that just knows how to win. Um, they've been there. They've done that, you know, last four or five years. They had, you know, they've been a dynasty. Uh and it was not one of their most talented teams, but they just knew how to win. And, you know, Florida State, they're getting there. They're, they're finally learning how to win. I think that Miami game was uh, evidence of that. And I know we're, I'm not trying to talk about football for this long, but I think Florida State softball is that same way. 
no matter what, you're betting on them when they're when they're tied in the seventh inning. Um, they just they just know how to win, and that is probably the most important mark of a championship team, other than talent. So good luck to them, and uh, we'll see what they can do this postseason. Speaking of a, a Florida State team that knows how to win, uh, the soccer team, their new head coach, Brian Penske, had his, his press conference earlier uh, th- this previous week. Just want to touch on something interesting that, that he pointed out. Um, his, his emphasis right now is on, on recruiting, but not nationally, is, is re-recruiting the players that are on the team uh, after the resignation of, of previous head coach Mark Akorian. The, the core of this championship team entered the transfer portal. Uh, names that a lot of people would know, Vieta Olsen, Clara Robbins, Christina Roque, the goalie, Emily Madrill, the all-world center back, uh, Jenna Nyswanger, Lauren Flynn, Christina, Christina Lynch uh, already transferred to Notre Dame. So there is a bit of control uh, concern there. Uh, Penske said that they are in, he called it the red triangle of the close portal. So other teams aren't allowed to contact them, but they put their name in. I think you have to put it before May 1st. Um, if you want to be eligible to play. So there was a, a lot of players that weren't happy with Gregorian leaving that wanted kind of their future secured. Um, and so Penske's going to have kind of his work cut out for him, uh, keeping the core that he has. But if he can, uh, they should be one of the favorites, I think, nationally again next season. So that'll wrap it up for the first half. When we come back, a conversation with myself and Max Rundy about Major League Baseball. And then after that, we'll close the show out with some conversations about the NBA playoffs. So make sure to stick with us. And now we are joined by Max Rundy to talk some baseball. Max, great to have you back on the show. And we talked a little bit beforehand. Uh, you're working in baseball right now. Yeah, that is correct. I'm currently working for the uh, Birmingham Barons, the uh, AA baseball affiliate of the Chicago White Sox. It's been a blast. Get to see some pretty name, pretty pretty big prospects. Like uh, currently, we our biggest player is Yoenis Cespedes' younger brother. Joel Queen Cespedes, but uh, we just faced off against, we're currently playing, because in minor league baseball, they do six-game sets instead of three travel and then come back later in the season. We're currently playing the Tennessee Smokies, just like how the White Sox and Cubs are facing off in the big league level. We got a little Cubs-White Sox rivalry at the double-A level right now. Oh, man, you got the real, the real stuff going down. Uh, down there so tell us a little bit what what's it like what kind of stuff are they having you doing they got me doing anything and everything there and i've heard from my coworker who holds like the same exact position to me he's been here a whole month ahead he said he's he's been in the mascot twice already so that 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 just goes to show they will ask you to do anything here if, but, they, if they let you in the mascot suit we're gonna need a video or, or something some kind of evidence of, of you doing that I'm just praying I don't fit in it. That's my goal right now. And oh, you're gonna love but hate the, the nicknames because we have a we have a girl and a guy mascot. It's Babe Ruff and Will and Lily Mays. Um, oh man, it's bad. It's bad. But it's been a blast. It's it's interacting with coaches and players on a daily. You get to talk to home and away broadcasters. Give them all the stats and information they need on both rosters. It's really the behind-the-scenes thing that if you weren't there, it would go, like, noticed. It would be vital information they need and would have to do on the fly. But it's really an overlooked aspect of baseball. I mean, with all these numbers out there and all these people talking about them, 
someone's got to distribute them. That's true. Yeah, then there's hundreds of minor league teams, all kinds of people doing that. Well, that'll be great. I look forward to. We'll talk more this summer, and then maybe in the fall after it's done, because that, that sounds like uh, a pretty cool gig. But we've got you here because you know uh, all about the MLB. We talked you and I on the show uh, before the season was underway, and now that we're into the second month of the season, you know teams that we kind of know what they are at this point. Some storylines beginning to develop, and we'll start with with kind of the headlining news. Uh, the past few days the miracle Mets could it be the repeat of the 69 season they had a, a tremendous comeback in Philadelphia the previous 330 times the Mets trailed by six runs in the ninth inning they lost they ended up coming back to win in a tremendous fashion they put up a seven run inning in the ninth uh, they've, they've had multiple comeback wins like that and um, I think a lot of people thought the Mets would be good obviously New York there was a lot of expectations but like I said, Miracle Mets, there's something about this franchise. When they're right, they're really right. And it was so funny last night because we're, we're sitting up there in the booth at, at the Barons game, and we're also blowing out the Smokies at this point. So it's like I'm kind of paying attention to the game, but I'm just checking the TV every once in a while. I look up 7-1. to one. I'm like, oh, this game's over. Look up again, it's like 7-3. to three. I'm like, oh, they're clawing their way out, but it's the ninth inning, no shot. Then they're down two runs with two strikes, two down. And I'm like, it's got to be over. I look down. I finish the rest of that Barons game, and I look up at the end of the game, and I'm like, oh, wow, the Phillies blew it. And it's got to be the most Philly thing ever. And I think the thing about this Mets team that goes so over, like unlooked, un- unappreciated, is the impact of Buck Showalter. This team is a good team. They added a lot in the offseason. But really, I think a culture change is what's really turned this team around, and nobody can do that better than Buck Showalter. He's a legend in the baseball industry. Yeah, you listen to, to people that follow that team and cover that team. Obviously, the Mets, you know, one of the more notable kind of fan bases, whatever. I mean, they're they're even crediting Showalter right now for fixing Edwin Diaz because now he's pitching like he's back in Seattle again. So. Um, I mean, maybe it's possible that they're giving him too much credit, but I, I tend to agree with you. It's like this franchise hasn't seen anything like this in in almost two decades, and, and Showalter steps back in uh, to the dugout, and all of a sudden, you know, they're a championship contender. So it really is interesting to see. And then the other side of that that game, that, that comeback, the Philadelphia Phillies, they've got one of the, the longest, I think, playoff droughts. In the big leagues right now, you know, the past couple seasons, they really faded ugly down the stretch. They've got Joe Girardi and their dugout, and, and he was getting really crucified after that, that, after they blew that lead, and he said, you know, maybe one of the worst losses of his career. I mean, yes, the bullpen is bad, but is this on Girardi too? I mean, this, this team should be doing a lot better than they are. And the worst part is their numbers honestly show that they are playing well, and they're just not when you look at the win-loss column. I mean... This is a team with a lot of bat talent. This offense could be the best in baseball if everything goes well. The bullpen's just atrocious. I mean, they're relying on one of our former guys, Jose Alvarado, to come in and just pound the strike zone, the thing he is worst at. And it's just outside of him, this guy like Nectar Harris, I think, still. It's like, oh, it's just a, such an average bullpen at best. And they're thin at the starter. They got one or two consistent guys and then just on and off pitchers it's such a sad waste of offensive talent is the best way I would put it 
It, yeah, and it's not just the talent, but the amount of money that they invested. Obviously, that that monster contract, Bryce Harper, that that changed kind of the the free agency landscape. They brought in Castellanos, gave him the bag. Uh, they've got all these players up and down this lineup. Real Muto, one of the highest paid catchers. So they're they're investing in in baseball in a sport where you don't necessarily have to invest, as we'll talk about with a team like Cincinnati. When you do invest and you don't have the results, that can be maybe the most frustrating thing of all. And, and Philadelphia, we know, is maybe the, the most rabid sports city in America. They may be coming by for Girardi's head by the end of the month. I mean, right now, as a time of recording, they're seven games back of first. They've lost four in a row. And then, you, you know, you compare that to the, one of their biggest rivals in the Mets doing so well. And, and this is yet another season where the Phillies, uh, they're in a funk. And... I think it's just one of those things. They're, they're sort of following the trend of the New York Yankees where they spend so much on their offense. They got that Bryce Harper contract, that, the Rule Muto contract, that Castellanos contract. And then what do they have for pitchers? They, they're just missing the pitching pay. And if you look about, and like you were saying about how MLB, it's not always a sport where you need to invest and how even sometimes when you do invest, it'll come back to bite you. Look at the Texas Rangers this season. They're 10 and 14. They're as bad as the Athletics. The Athletics didn't spend a single dollar this offseason. A single dollar. The Rangers spent like 300 plus million on two guys, and one of them's not even reaching the Mendoza line right now. It's just baseball is very unique like that, and it's coming back to hurt the Phillies and the Rangers badly right now. Yeah, so with the Rangers, it that was a story that I think caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess they're an ownership group that has money. They just built that that new grand ballpark that hosted the World Series a couple of years ago. I mean, they're they're doing fine, but that that post lockout spending spree, and then all of a sudden, you know, they pick up two of the hottest free agents on the market in, in Simeon and Seager. But out of that that free agent class, they're probably two of the worst out of the group. So, do you think maybe Texas chose the wrong guys? Are they wrong fits? I mean. What, what, what was even the thought process behind this move for a team that is still probably a couple more years away? And, and you and I talked a bit about this last night. You were pretty high on Semyon, and I, I was as well. And you're not quite as high on Seager. I, I think these are two very talented hitters, very talented players. But you, you talk about two major flaws about each guy. They're both different, but Seager's issue is defense. That guy is not a consistent shortstop. How long is his contract? Was something like 10 years? I think they're both 10 years or like maybe 10 years and 8 years. I mean, they're long-term deals. I'll, I'll tell you this right now. First off, the problem is Seager cannot be a shortstop for 10 more years. He just can't be. His defense will not hold up. And the other problem is Simeon's just old. Simeon, shout out former Birmingham Baron, ironically enough. Simeon, he's just, he's got to regress one of these years and Baseball is definitely one of those sports where you can peak late in your career, and that's definitely the case with Semyon. But it looks like his peak might have been the three years leading up to this year. The past three years, he has been a top three MVP candidate every year, and he's deserved all the money he has been given. But the years, the amount of, the length of these contracts are so questionable for a team that is not on the verge of winning, and I don't Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think their farm system is that remarkable either. No, I mean they had that that Jack Leiter kid from Vanderbilt that they that they drafted I think last year. But they, you're right, it's a thin system. It's not like you know they've got all these guys coming up and they were just maybe a second baseman and a shortstop away. I mean they've got a couple guys. You know Garcia was in contention for rookie of the year. They have Leiter, as I said, but 
there's no question that that Simeon and Seeger was not enough to to make much of a difference at all. And I think, especially when you look with regards to the West, you you look at the Mariners. That's a very young, up and coming team just ahead of them. Then you look at the Astros. The Astros, sure, they might be falling apart in a year or two. But over the next two years, I think the Astros are going to be better than the Rangers no matter what. And then above all else, you got the Angels, arguably the two best players in baseball on that team. And then you got some sneaky players. You got uh, Joe Adele, who, granted, he did just get sent down, but he's still a former top prospect. And you got this new guy, former first round pick, Taylor Ward, finally coming into his own late in his career. But he, he's playing like one of the best outfielders in baseball. This is just a contested division and as much as the athletics aren't going to be good in the next three years if you really want to look into the large scope of these rangers contracts in the next six years i would not be surprised if the athletics are mediocre again because their farm system is always deep always deep yeah i mean when you trade away all of your good players of course that's going to reload the system they chip away chapman olsen um, Bassett, all these guys, maybe Montas will be on the way. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah, if the, if Oakland is is back to prominence more sooner than Texas. Back to Marcus Simeon, I just had a thought. Um, I remember in 2019 when Oakland won the wild card and Simeon was there. He played all 162 games. I think he was the only guy in the big leagues to do that. Um, he was a crucial player for Toronto on that one year deal. They played him a ton. You mentioned him, kind of. He's not not necessarily old, but almost on the back nine of his career already. Do you think being one of those last kind of Ironmen left in this game that play every day, maybe has that been what's caught up to him because he's not really looking like the guy he's been? And I think, here's what I'll say. His career might not be on the back end, but I don't think it's going to go up anymore. I, I, I truthfully believe he's probably just in a bad slump right now, but... It's just he's 31 years old, and when you play as much as you play, as he's played, and at a pretty physically demanding spot, I mean, most of his career has been a shortstop. Now he's switched over to second, both of which are not necessarily easy, motionless positions. I mean, he's got wear and tear every single day out there. It's just something that – it's not something I would have predicted. I'll tell you that much. I think Marcus Semyon was a a, – I can't lose for the Blue Jays personally, and – they worked around it. They, they're looking good out, out there in the AL East, but I, I, I don't know. Marcus Simeon is truthfully someone I appreciate. I think he's got value. He's just not proving it right now, and prove me wrong later on in the year, but it, it might be a really bad contract. might be one of those Justin Upton, Albert Pujols contracts we look back on and just say the Rangers really missed right there. Yeah, Pujols is definitely a contract that comes to mind. You know, another AL West team that – um, you know, is not in the national spotlight. So, you know, with a lot of dead money, they could just kind of fade into mediocrity for a while. We'll kind of keep our eyes if they can try and turn it around this year. But um, the American League East, the division, you know, we talked about the Blue Jays. I think the both of us thought that losing Simeon could be a, a player for Toronto. I think they've been they've been all right. As of right now, they're five games over, um, you know, gone five and five in their last ten. So they're hanging around. But the New York Yankees are really – um, the the talk of the town right now. They had that, I think, 11-game win streak. Um, things were kind of ugly at the beginning of the year. Garrett Cole pitched really bad as his first three starts. Then he's going to the pant leg and maybe picking up some, some spider tack or what, and now all of a sudden he's kind of back to his old form. Their starting rotation as a whole has been good. 
the bullpen good. The lineup, I think, is coming back. Um, the Yankees are in first place. What they're doing right now, is it sustainable? I, I would say so. Maybe not out. So currently, this is one of the best pitching teams in baseball. That is a surprise. That is probably not sustainable. Specifically, they have the second-best ERA, 2-6. Their bullpen's shut down. Their bullpen's lights out, always has, or at least has been in recent years, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon. The real clincher about this team for me is their starting pitching. It comes down to whether or not Severino, anyone behind Garrett Cole. Look, you and I and the rest of baseball fans out there love to give some grief to Garrett Cole. But he's a good pitcher. Even without Spider Tech, he's a good pitcher. He's not maybe the $200 million pitcher that they're paying him to be without Spider Tech. He's definitely a one or two pitcher either way, I would say, though. And the Yankees' problem, and you, you go back five years, the Yankees' problem was they just never had a two guy. They used to have CeCe Sabathia lighten it up for him. Who else? 39-year-old Andy Pettit? Like, the, they're just so front-heavy when it comes to that rotation. But the Yankees' biggest upgrade was defense and hitting their hitting is so much more consistent this year they, they picked up Rizzo they granted they picked up Rizzo last year but he's finally coming into himself and realizing oh I have a 300 foot wall out there that I might as well just abuse he's I'm pretty sure tied or one behind the MLB league for home runs right now thanks to that stat cast era low for three home run games did you see that yeah, they were all in the the cheapies in in the in the short porch, right? All of those home runs. It was the shortest three home run night of all time. Each one was like three feet over the fence. But either way, as a team, they're second best in OPS seven four seven. Yankees are good. It's just going to come down to their starting pitching, and year in and year out, their starting pitching crumbles over time. I couldn't agree with you more. Luis Severino, definitely a linchpin to what this team can accomplish. Really hadn't started a full game since about 2019, um, and now he's back. He's looked good at his last couple times out. Garrett Cole's returned back to form. Nestor Cortez is, is beloved in that city as kind of the, the ace of the people kind of thing, and they've got a couple arms on the back end in Tyone and Montgomery that aren't half bad, but you're, you're right to bring up with the Yankees. We see time and time again they'll fade. Uh, down the stretch, you know Boone is is not a great track record for for managing a pitching staff. So um, I, I I'm with you there. Like they're doing really good now, as I said, talk of the town. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is a team that uh, is one of the the top implode candidates. Uh, you know, come come August uh, or September, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays they're they're coming around. They had kind of an an early season slump, and I think they're kind of finding their form. Um, relief pitching has been very good their starting rotation decimated by injuries but as they always do they're finding their way around it and uh, a lineup that was I think top five if not top 10 in baseball a year ago and and they're kind of coming back around as well obviously we're both a little bit biased but a team that certainly we wouldn't be surprised to top the division come the end of the season and I'll say this about the Rays the Rays are going to Ray. It's a stupid saying, and it's not my own saying. I did take it from someone, but it, it is a good saying. It doesn't matter who's out there for them. They're going to win these just tightly, con- tightly contested games in whatever way they can. This is not a team that's going to lead baseball in batting average, not a team that's going to lead baseball in slugging. 
This is a team that's going to earn every single run they get and then shut the door down with by far the most innings pitched in baseball when it comes to bullpen. It's it's just remarkable how this team handles their pitching. And if we go back a couple episodes, I'd like to check in on my AL Cy Young pick, Shane McClanahan, who currently leads the MLB in strikeouts and is only ninth in innings pitched. So usually strikeouts is an inning pitched reliant type of stat, but he's, he's doing pretty well for it. How many innings he's thrown? I think he hit 101 on the gun a time or two his last start in Seattle. I mean, he's got, I think, his last few times out, about a 50% whiff rate on his off-speed pitches, which is absurd. He had a stretch there where his fastballs were getting knocked around, but I think um, there's some regression to the mean there. Yeah, I kind of, I wasn't quite sure when you brought that up. I just, I, I thought it was too soon, but you're being proven right so far, and um, you can talk about Cy Young. You, when you have a good team and a guy who's a defined ace for that really good team, that's going to help him a lot uh, if he can stay healthy through the course of, of that year. So that'll be interesting. And not, not to cut you off, but that's exactly why teams like the Rays are always so good. They don't have that on-paper talent that everyone shouts about. But their bullpen, and we talked about it at the beginning of the year, their bullpen might be one of the worser bullpens we've had in recent seasons. And they're still doing what they need to do to get victories late in night, late late in games, and it's just not the same with other teams. And you you could even moving to the AL Central, you could say the same about the White Sox right now. Granted, the White Sox are hit more with the starting pitching bugaboo right now, but it's just pitching matters the most in baseball, and it's not even close. Yeah, and it's a lot of really interesting divisions right now. There's only a couple that I think aren't going to be exciting storylines throughout the course i mean the american league east the west um the national league west all kinds of you know three or four teams in contention it's going to come down the stretch so uh, it's been a great baseball season so far max it's been great uh, having you on this week's episode of tomahawk talk and uh with the birmingham barons are they going to let you uh go over and see a couple of usfl games while you're there Ah, uh, that's the thing. I actually am working in the booth with a couple guys that have some good ties, so I might, I might be able to get in there. If you didn't know, like all those USFL games are being played at, I think it's Protective Stadium. It's so funny too because every Saturday night the Baron, the, the Birmingham team plays, whereas the rest of the teams in that league get other nights scheduled because Birmingham is drawing like. 3,000 fans plus to their games. All the other teams are drawing in the hundreds. It, it's crazy to hear about. That is a really weird... We haven't covered the USFL much. I think it's just one of those... They wanted so bad just to put games on TV. As you said, they're, all the games are neutral siders. It's so strange. I mean, is it... Are the Stallions... Are they even the talk of the town? Are, they, are people interested over there? I'll, I'll tell you this. When it comes down to a Saturday night option... The Stallions are drawn fans. They really are. And we, we're a little – I can't speak for the whole organization of the Barons, but it's definitely a concern I had when I first came to Birmingham. I was like, yo, with this whole football league here, are we going to be worried about our Saturday draws? But so far, the people of Birmingham are really showing out for their Barons, and it, it's, it's a fun time. It really is. Baseball and minor league baseball in some of the smaller towns, I think, a backbone of the country. It's been part of the part of this nation forever. So it's good to see that in some some places it's still being supported. 
Max, it's been great having you on. Hopefully we can have you on some more this summer to, to talk some more MLB and uh, have a great time there working for the Barons. It sounds like a nice gig. Yeah, having a blast. I actually got to get going in about 15 minutes. All right, man. Have a good one. Yep, thank you. And thank you for Max Runney for coming on to talk baseball as we uh, welcome you back with the rest of the guys, Jackson Bakich and Jack Oliaro. And I'll throw this out to close the show, some basketball talk. Um, Eastern Conference mostly, Joel Embiid, after his Sixers dropped the first two games against the Heat, he returned with the mask. And it seems like every player that puts on the mask is just unbeatable. He had a double-double and, and he got the Sixers back in the win column. So uh, that's an interesting topic. I'll throw this out to you guys Philadelphia, Miami, uh, Milwaukee, even Boston. Who do you guys like right now as things stand to win the Eastern Conference? I, I like the Celtics. I, I look at a team that has four or five defenders that are really, really good. Obviously, uh, I'm going to sound redundant, but they're really good defensively. Um, you, you look at the playoffs, you look how the playoffs are officiated, which I think is dumb, by the way, how they change their officiating for the playoffs. Um, but you look how the, how the playoffs are officiated and you need a good defensive team because they're not going to, they're, they're going to be a lot more forgiving when it comes to more physical play. So, uh, and then you look at, you know, players like Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown and, uh, even Al Horford guys that can give you buckets any night of the week. Uh, I really like the Celtics in the way they're, they're comprised for the playoffs. I like the Sixers, um, and with Joel Embiid being back, that certainly helps the case I had uh, when I said this a couple weeks ago. But um, his importance is not cannot be undermined because the first two games you'd see the Sixers like they're just staying alive. Like you can tell, it's like it didn't seem like they're going to win. If it is, it's mostly because the Heat are going to lose because there's always be a third or fourth quarter surge by these by the with a flaming hot heat three ball, uh, which just blow them out of the water, uh, especially in game two where they hit half their three pointers. Uh, but without, without Joel Embiid being the series, just injured, this is a four or five game. Good night. Uh, move on. But he is back and he does have mask on. It's mask on mode. Uh, and if he isn't injured, this is maybe going to be a two, two or three, one situation coming into the clutch time uh, in favor of Philadelphia. I should might add on that three, one, he's that good and that dominant. And, I don't think it's, I don't think the double double he had in game three even gives you the full reason why. Um, so I think if they if Joel Embiid remains in the series, the Sixers can maybe make a run and maybe just close out the Heat. That depends most. Uh, another thing on Jimmy Butler and Tyler Hero and whatnot. But I think they can go forward. And if they do play a Celtic squad, I think they have the star power, um, at least from Joel Embiid, to power that out. Is it the best argument in the world? Because uh, I can't argue against Celtics, who are a fantastic uh, all-around team, and I think we will get past the Bucks. But I do think this, like Jewel and Beat, is that good, and I think the Sixers will get it together at the right moment. That'll be the problem is with the Sixers. You have one option, and that's Joel and Beat. I mean, you have, I mean, Danny Green maybe he has a good night. You know, James Harden has not been playing James Harden esque. But if James Harden uh, can look up for just a moment, that change that can that can change the whole thing. If we have a Celtics Sixers series, but right now, I'm just I'm just I need the Sixers to get past the Heat at the moment. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. That would be big for Embiid in his career. It's been a long road if if he can continue the process out to the next level of the NBA playoffs. But that'll do it for this week's 
edition of Tomahawk Talk. We most likely we'll have a couple people at least in studio uh, next week. So make sure to follow us um, on social media at V89 Sports uh, to stay tuned for that. Also at V89 Sports on Instagram. For myself, William Haynes, my co-host Jackson Bakich, our producer, Jack Oliaro, this has been another edition of Tomahawk Talk. You're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.